Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of September 25th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. Today, as we do that, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, the Gospel of Matthew, the first of those four Gospels of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 9. How many of you remember as a kid ever playing the game, follow the leader? All right, some of you remember that. I bet you almost every single one of you played it. Apparently, some of you just don't remember playing it. Now, I don't know about you. It always seemed like, you know, when you take turns being the leader, at least when we played, one of the rules was not only do you have to go where the leader goes, but you have to follow them not just to where they go, but in how they go there. So if they skip, you have to skip. If they walk funny, you have to walk funny. You know, the classic joke, walk this way. And everybody, yeah. Some of you got that. And you always had that person, and, and I, I probably was that person, who did stuff like that. Who, who would say, follow me and walk this way, not just to make the game harder, but because it was fun to watch 15 people walk that way. Or to do something silly. Or, or was that just me? Any of you like that? You're not admitting it right now, are you? Sometimes you do things just to see what they'll do and how far they'll go and, you know. Well, as we come to our, our, um, our new series, it's called Follow Me. And this is the invitation that Jesus gives his disciples. If we, if we're going to read this this morning in Matthew chapter 9, but we know this is not the only case. That when Jesus often asks his followers to begin to, in fact, follow him, he used this phrase, follow me. This was the call to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And over the next few weeks, we're going to explore what it means, in fact, to be a disciple in this series, Follow Me. In fact, the last words of Christ are a command to his disciples to go and make more disciples. In other words, what Jesus says there in, in the book of Acts or, in the end of, or at the end of Matthew chapter 28, he tells his disciples this, go and make more of you guys. You guys are disciples, go and make more. More. This was his command to the 11 that remained. It's a command that's been passed down from generation to generation for hundreds and thousands of years. It's, it's a command. It's a purpose. It's a call. It's, it's a commission, if you will, that's crucial to us being here some 2,000 years after the events of Christ's life. Now, the journey of making a disciple, of being a disciple, well, that started for them around three years before Jesus had given them those instructions. Each one of them had heard the words of Christ to follow him. They'd heard them from his lips directly. And the truth is there were more than just those 11 or 12 disciples. We know there was upwards of 500 disciples, even though the Lord had appointed these 11 or 12 men as apostles in addition to that. But we're going to, over the, again, the next few weeks explore what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So we're going to begin this morning again in Matthew chapter 9. Actually, we're going to begin reading in verse 9, and this is his conversation with a, a young man by the name of Levi, or in fact, Matthew. Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. He said to him, follow me. He got up and he followed him. 
It happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, there behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, as we read your scripture, as we study it, I pray that we would understand what it means to be called to follow you and to be a disciple. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When Matthew, in, in fact, the various accounts of the 12 disciples that we have are called to Christ, they are given a sequence. The sequence looks largely the same. Whether you're talking about Matthew, whether you're talking about Peter and Andrew and James and John or whoever else, Jesus' call to them looks pretty much the same. He comes up to them and says, follow me. And it says they pretty much drop what they're doing, leave everything behind, and they immediately turn and go and follow him. So he says, follow, and they follow. Now I want us to note for a moment here as we look at this passage of Scripture, what isn't in there. Matthew does not, for example, say, cool idea, but let's talk terms. He doesn't negotiate. He doesn't say, I'll follow you tomorrow. He doesn't say, well, I'll follow you, but can I keep on doing some tax collecting on the side? Because that's a really nice source of income. He doesn't do that. What does Matthew, in fact, do? He leaves it behind. And apparently he leaves everything behind. Matthew, again, he doesn't negotiate. He doesn't even ask where Jesus is going. He doesn't ask what Jesus is going to require. He doesn't ask the cost. He doesn't, know, he doesn't ask what time's involved. He doesn't say, I'll do it next week. He just gets up and follows Christ. When I came to Christ at the age of nine, I probably could not have explained all that being a disciple of Jesus or being a Christian means. But what I did agree to do, whether I really fully appreciated it or not, was I agreed to follow Christ. There was an action involved, a response to the invitation I had heard, a following, if you will. It's what Peter, James, and John and others did as well. Now, I doesn't say here whether Matthew had any prior knowledge or experience or familiarity with Jesus. I would speculate that he probably at least knew who Jesus was. He, he may not have had any personal encounters with Christ. He may not have ever had a conversation with him, but he probably knew Jesus at least a little bit by reputation. But we don't know that. Nothing is given here about that. What we do know is this. Jesus calls Matthew follows. And this is for us, even this morning, the picture of what God has called us to do. So when Jesus calls, he doesn't call Matthew to follow him simply as a rabbi and as a teacher. Now, Jesus was, in fact, a rabbi, or for you and I, just a teacher. And to follow a rabbi or to follow a teacher in that day and age was not an uncommon thing. To be a disciple of a rabbi was a fairly common thing in certain circles in ancient Israel. But Jesus' call to Matthew, Jesus' call to Peter and James and John and all those other guys was not the call of a teacher to a rabbi, it was not, or, or of a rabbi to a student. Jesus' call has got much more to it. Jesus can call these guys and they drop everything 
to follow him, not because he's just a good inspirational teacher, but because he is, in fact, the Son of God. He has authority. He has power. Was Jesus Christ a compelling, persuasive speaker? I have no doubt. But this call to follow him isn't simply the call of a teacher to a student. This is the call of the Son of God to those men, later to those others, who would in fact follow him to the very ends of the world. They are going to follow a guy who will at some point calm the seas and raise the dead, who will heal blind people and feed thousands. It's the authority. It's the person of Christ as the Son of God. That's who they obey, and that's who they follow. Matthew, the others, even the ones that came later. When Jesus gives a summons, a call, he doesn't do so simply as a teacher, not simply as a, a life coach, if you will, or a mentor. He's not a self-help guru here to make you a better father or a better mother or a better whatever. He's not here to make you more successful in business. He's here as the Son of God saying, you follow me. He's not there to make them better fishermen or better tax collectors or even simply better people. He's not there to improve their financial outlook. He is a divine man. Perfect, righteous, more powerful than any of them can really fully, even at that point in time, imagine. And as such, he calls them, you follow me. The call to come to Jesus today, by the way, is the same thing. We gather together this morning not simply to celebrate a moral approach to life. You and I are not gathered together this morning for the purposes of just simply being better people. We're not gathered this morning to, to uh, come around a set of laws or rules that make us better this or better that, or to make us more prosperous or more successful or whatever else. That's not why we gather together this morning. We're not gathered together to come together to be part of a, a nice community organization that tries to help other people. Now, we may do all those things, but that's not why we are gathered. We come together this morning not even to be led or comforted by or made to feel better by someone like me speaking up here. We come this morning, you and I together, we come this morning because we have been asked and even invited to follow somebody, namely Jesus. He's the one we're looking for. When you come this morning, yes, we're attending services at a place we call London First Baptist Church, and we're gathered together in a building, or maybe you're watching us online. But again, this church is not the point. You're not following me as a pastor of a church. We are gathered together this morning for one reason and for one person only, Christ himself. We follow him. Paul, in the letter to, he wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, has to very early on in that book say, listen, you guys have had me there. You guys have had Peter there. You guys have had Apollos. You've had all these great people, and none of them are who you're supposed to be following. The Corinthian church had been saying, hey, we came to faith under Peter, or we came to faith under Apollos, or Paul was our pastor. And, and Paul just says, stop it. <laughs> we don't follow a, a Paul or an Apollos. We follow 
Christ. That's why we're here. And this morning as we gather together, that's why we gather together, to be a disciple of Jesus, to follow him. Now, when he says follow him, what's he mean? Well, that's part of what we're going to be exploring over the next several weeks. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I'm going to quote him a couple times this morning, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian and author. He lived in the 1920s, 20s, and 30s, and, and he was, eventually was put to death by the Nazis just weeks before his concentration camp would have been liberated. He was imprisoned by them because of what he preached and how he refused to go along with the Nazi regime there in Germany. And he talks about discipleship. He has a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that he says, here's what it means to be a disciple. It was basically Jesus saying to this, you guys run behind me. You guys just follow me. Just do what I do. You run along behind me. That is all. That's it. Our invitation this morning is to simply find Jesus and run along behind him. It's not more complicated. It's not any less complicated. It's simply to do that, to imitate, to be a disciple of Jesus means that the laws and the rules that the Old Testament gives us are all fulfilled in him. Jesus Christ said, I didn't come to get rid of all the laws. I came to embody them, to fulfill them, to do them all perfectly. And as he has done them, then we follow him. So you and I, our attention this morning is on the person, the actions, the personality, if you will, of Jesus Christ himself. Now we may find as we, pro as we follow him that all these other things kind of happen, <laughs> but Jesus Christ himself is what we are following. He is what we're imitating because he is the Son of God. I want you to ask a question. I'm gonna, I want to pause and ask a question this morning. And I ask this question because I think sometimes we actually, in fact, try to do this. But here's the question. Can I be a Christian and not a disciple? Can I be a Christian and not be a disciple? I've been in the ministry for 30-something years. And I hate to say this, but I've seen a lot of people trying to do exactly that. They want the name Christian. They want to show up to church. They want to feel good. They want to feel like they've gotten maybe a little bit better at whatever else that the church might help them with. They have some measure of thought in their mind that I can say I believe in God and I'm okay. So the question is, can I be a Christian and not be a disciple? You might as well ask this, can I follow and not be following? That's essentially the same question. Again, Bonhoeffer says this, Christianity without discipleship is Christianity without Christ. Can you imagine a Matthew or a Peter and James or any other guys, when Jesus shows up and says, follow me, they go, part-time, yes. <laughs> Can you imagine them saying that? Now, I will say this, others did in fact say that. If we were to to explore elsewhere in Scripture. Matthew chapter 8 describes this. Luke chapter 9 describes this. Matthew chapter 8, there are a couple of individuals who do exactly this. It says in Matthew 8, 18, it says, When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. A scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Another of, his disciples, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me. Allow the dead to bury their own dead. Luke chapter 9 gives us a third example of someone who says he wanted to follow Christ, and he said, uh, but let me go home and say goodbye and do these other things first. And there's a context to all those things, but essentially what these, what these individuals are saying is this. We want to follow you. We want to do some things. We want to be around you, but we want to do so under our own terms. I had a friend of mine many years ago, and I, I, I understood where he was coming from. He was a fellow youth pastor. We'd worked together on some camps and some things, and, and he's, he's a really good guy. He really is. He's, he's a faithful servant of the Lord. But he, he was, a, at the time, he was a bivocational youth pastor at a smaller church, and it was a difficult situation he was in. And, and he was looking for a, a different ministry setting. And we were talking through the process, and uh, he asked me a couple of questions about what that meant. And he was from this one portion of Texas. And he really, and I get why, he wanted to stay as a, as a youth pastor in that section, in that region of Texas. It's where all his family was at. It's where his wife's family was from. His kids and their grandparents, all that type of stuff. And he, he asked me this question. He said, do you think it's okay if I pray something like this? Lord, I want to be, I want to serve you, but only here. I won't move somewhere else. And I get it. I get why he would want to stay where he was at. But I simply told him this. I said, I can't imagine actually praying and telling God, I'll serve you, but only here. Now, you might tell him you'll do that. He might give you a spot. But to tell God you'll serve him, but only on your terms, that's not what disciples do. These men in Matthew 8, or if you see the parallel account in Luke chapter 9, they may have been well-intentioned. In fact, they probably were really rather sincere. But the, the text implies in both places that these individuals came up and said, we want to follow you, but... And when Jesus responds, the idea is that they did not follow him because they could not come to Jesus on their own terms, but... Jesus requires us to follow him on his terms. He is the rabbi. If you were to be a student in the days of Christ, if you were to be a student of a rabbi, what that meant was this. You surrender your life to the rabbi. Uh, to, to give you the best uh, current idea of this, if you've ever seen the movie Karate Kid, and you know the phrase, wax on, wax off. Some of you do. Think that. When the rabbi says, do this, you wax on and you wax off. When he says, paint the fence, you, you, know, you know all that. All that stuff. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that give me, aren't, aren't you scared of me now? Yeah, don't attack me. I know wax on, wax off. <laughs> but one of the whole points of that was the, the teacher knew what he was doing. Miyagi knew what was happening uh, Danielson didn't. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm using the old Karate Kid, not the remake from like a few years ago. This is what a rabbi and a student did in Jesus' day. The student, the disciple, if you will, his job was to go around and to watch and to listen everything the rabbi said. Wherever the rabbi went, the student went too. 
whatever the rabbi said, the student committed to memory. And the idea was that when the, the, the rabbi would send out the student, the student could quote and speak exactly what the rabbi had said. That he could imitate the mannerisms and the way he walked and what he did and everything that he lived. The idea was for a student was to mimic and to be like the rabbi to such a degree that when he spoke, the people around him would go, oh yeah, well that's so-and-so's student. They could identify the rabbi by the student. This is what Jesus means by being a disciple. We know it happened. We even today use the word Christian, but we understand that that word Christian, that title Christian, came from the believers who followed Christ in, in the city of Antioch. And it became as a, it, was, it originated kind of as a slur, a, 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 a form of derision and mocking. The people in Antioch were watching these people who acted and behaved and talked like this guy named Jesus to Christ. And so they made fun of him. They're a bunch of little bitty Jesus. They called them little Christs. And that's what the word Christian means. It means little Christs. In other words, the disciples of Jesus were so good at imitating Jesus that they were being made fun of for looking like Jesus. Now, of course, the disciples of Jesus took that as a compliment, and they adopted the term. But that's the point. So to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, means to, to imitate, to walk after. Your life is dedicated to listening and watching and seeing and then imitating and trusting all that that rabbi has to say and all that that rabbi has to do. And that's why when the guys in Matthew 8 or Luke 9 show up to Jesus and he's, they said, we'll follow you, but... And Jesus says things like, well, listen, I don't have a place to lay my head. I don't have a place to call home. Now, is Jesus telling them that they'll have to sleep outdoors the rest of their lives? No. He's just telling them, make sure you know what you're getting yourself into. So the guy says, uh, well, I want to go bury my father. Well, the implication probably really is that his parents are still alive. He wants to wait until he's honored them and taken care of them, and then he'll come and follow Christ. And that, by the way, is not a bad thing to want. The, the, the Old Testament tells us we are supposed to honor our parents. So this guy might be saying, listen, I'm just trying to honor my parents. And that's not a bad thing. This other guy, just, he wants to go by and kind of say his goodbyes. That's not necessarily a bad thing in and of, them, in and of themselves. But I don't care what it is, how good we think it might be. We cannot negotiate terms with Christ. When he says follow, we follow. Even if that means abandoning things that we think are good. Because ultimately our allegiance is not to that, it, it is to him. Now he may well tell us, if, I can imagine this scenario, by the way, where one of those three guys might have said, listen, I, I need to go back and take care of my parents first. And Jesus said, or, well, Jesus said, well, you follow me? And the guy said, okay. Then I can imagine a scenario where Jesus said, listen, by the way, go take care of them first. But you can't negotiate that. <laughs> you can't say that first. You can't say, I'll only follow you if. To be a disciple means that everything is laid at his feet. We now live, if you will, at his discretion, at his disposal. We are his to do all that he has done. Matthew chapter 9, back there again, it says that he, when Matthew heard the call, it says he got up and he followed him. We know that Matthew never went back to tax collecting. 
And understand that Matthew, of all the disciples, was probably the wealthiest because of this particular job of vocation. And it was, it was considered to be a dishonorable one. It was considered to be a, a cheating. He was, as a tax collector, he would have been known for extorting people. So he was most likely a fairly wealthy guy. He was also very unpopular. It is kind of interesting, interesting to me that in those, uh, those 12 disciples, we, we think about those 12 apostles, you had a guy like Matthew, a tax collector, essentially a collaborator with the Roman Empire to betray and to oppress the Jews. So as a Jew, Matthew would have been seen by all those around him as essentially a traitor. But you also had a guy named Simon the Zealot. Now, if you don't know what a zealot is, the zealots were a party, a political party in ancient Israel. They essentially were, for lack of a better term, terrorists. Their job was to go try to assassinate and kill Roman collaborators. So you have, in, in those 12 guys, you have one who was a Roman collaborator, and you have one who's dedicated to killing those guys. And now they're serving Christ together. When we come to serve Christ as be his disciple, guess what we leave behind? Everything. Our ideologies, our politics, our wealth, our relationships. Now, it may be that God says, you keep that for a while, but we leave them behind. Matthew burned his bridges, so to speak. When he left, he left behind not just a lifestyle, but he left it behind a vocation. He left behind his wealth. He left it all behind to follow Christ. He didn't ask for terms. He just simply left it. Bonhoeffer says, Christ calls, the disciple follows. He says, follow me. Now, interesting to think about that phrase, the words follow me, there in verse 9. They are at once an invitation and at the same time a command. It's an invitation in this sense. Come. Trust me. Follow me. Be part of this. At the same time, it's also a command. Follow me. It has both things going on at the same time. It requires two things. The command, the, the, the phrase, follow me. It, it commands or it, it requires faith and it requires obedience. It requires faith in this sense. I'm not going to follow someone who I don't trust. I'm not going to surrender my life to someone who I don't believe is who he says he is and who has what's best in mind. Matthew abandons everything that he was before to follow Christ. That requires faith. But it also requires obedience. I can't tell the Lord, I will follow you except in this area. I can't tell the Lord, I will follow you, I will come after you except when it's inconvenient or when it hurts or when I'm confused, except for those times. So these other three characters we looked at there in Matthew 8, they want the ability to follow Jesus on their own terms. And that to a certain degree means this. I will follow you until it no longer suits my purposes. I will follow you until it no longer fits with my own agenda. I will follow you until really life hurts, and then I'm going to go back and do what I want to do. That's not discipleship. In other words, faith and obedience travel together. We talk, and we talk rightly so. I have mentioned it more than a few times through the years because this is something we fundamentally believe that we are you and I saved that is we are made right with God through faith we aren't made right 
by how well we keep the rules. We aren't made right with God. We don't get to heaven, so to speak, by how good we are at keeping the rules, by how often we attend church, by how much money we give. Those things don't make us right with God. We are, you and I, made right with God because Jesus did those things perfectly. He came. He perfectly lived. He was sinless. And as a sinless human being, he went to the cross and died not for what he did, but for what I did, what you did. And then he defeated, that, he defeated the consequences of death by raising back to life on the third day so that if you and I, as the Scripture says, if you and I will trust him, we have faith in him, we believe that he is who he said he is, we become his disciple, that he will give us the righteousness that he accomplished. This is the gift of salvation, and that comes through faith. I trust you, so you give me this. That's, the, that's it. But understand this. Faith is not simply the mental acknowledgement that something is true. I want to read for you a passage that has caused many a believer through the years to have some measure of, of hesitation. James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, says this, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and need of daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what's necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Someone may well say, well, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God's one. You do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham, or, well, let, me, let me just skip on down here. Verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In this way, in the same way, Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out to another way. As the body without the spirit's dead, also faith without works is dead. It does not mean that you and I are made right with God by keeping the rules, so to speak. It means this. If I have faith, saving faith, discipleship faith, it will always result in a change in our behavior. We, in other words, we cannot say, I will be a disciple, but will do so on my own terms. We cannot say, I'll follow you on Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, and Sunday, but on Monday, Wednesday, I want to do my own thing. That is not faith. Now, we may say, well, I believe Jesus Christ came and died and rose back to life. Good for you. So do the demons. <laughs> Satan knows that to be true. The difference is they haven't placed their lives in the hands of Christ. They haven't become disciples. Excuse the sarcasm there, but that's the point. In other words, can we be a disciple and not, and can we be a Christian and not be a disciple? The short answer is 
No. We can't. That's the point. To be a disciple means that God, through Christ, has given us an invitation and a command. You're invited to follow him, to obey him, to know him, to learn all you can about him so that you can live like he lived and talk like he talked and look like he looked, so to speak, love like he loved. You and I have the same call this morning that Matthew had all those years ago, the same gracious invitation also the same command of obedience and faith. Follow me. That is the call. You can acknowledge the facts. You can acknowledge even the data, if you will, of the gospel and the contents of Scripture. But that in and of itself is not faith. James makes it clear to us, as does most of Scripture, faith that saves, faith that makes us a disciple always results in discipleship, or in other words, following and obeying Christ. I will say this. The life of a disciple is not as easy as we think it is. The life of a disciple is more than a life that shows up in a building once a week and listens to a sermon or even sings a few songs. That by itself is not the life of a disciple. The life of a disciple is one who spends his days, spends her weeks, Knowing, trusting, obeying this person named Jesus. They're not following a pastor. They're not simply committed to an organization, but we are as disciples those who are focused solely on this figure, this person, the Son of God, who with authority says to us, you follow me. That's the invitation this morning. And let me tell you what, the life may at times be difficult. Jesus went out of his way to point that out. Because we understand where did Jesus' life lead him? It led him to the cross. And we also know that most of those early disciples well, the 12, almost all but one of them, did in fact die a martyr's death. Now, many of them who came after him did not necessarily, but many of them knew what it was to suffer. Sometimes being a disciple means, in fact, to suffer. But I will say this. Being a disciple may be risky. It may be at times be dangerous and challenging and uncomfortable, but I'm going to tell you, it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. As Peter said to Jesus, there was a, a time not long after the feeding of the 5,000 there it's recorded in the Gospel of John. And Jesus has said some pretty difficult things about what it means to follow him. So difficult, in fact, that many of them, it says almost all of the people left that day. And Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, you guys want to leave too? And Peter's response was this. Where else are we going to go? He didn't, he didn't say this, but it's implied. We've left everything behind. We've got nothing to go back to. Where else are we going to go? He says, you alone, Jesus, you alone have the words of eternal life. 
Where else would we go? That's the invitation this morning, to respond to Jesus' invitation and command to follow him. You see this morning the elements on the table. We are going to partake in the Lord's Supper this morning, but before we do that, I want to extend another invitation first, and that is simply to follow him. For, For these elements, and we're going to take what we sometimes call the Lord's Supper, there's a little cup of juice and a little little wafer here. And we understand that these by themselves are simply that, a wafer and a cup of juice. But to those who have chosen to follow Christ, for those who have placed their faith upon him and become a disciple, these things become more than just a cup of juice and a piece of bread. They become reminders of what being a disciple of Jesus means. They remind us that he went to the cross, that he in fact shed his blood, that he gave up his body, being represented by the, the, by the juice and by the, the bread, that he gave those things up, sacrificed his own physical life so that he could in fact give us, those who would have faith and become his disciples, that he could give us the righteousness of God and eternal life. And so for those who have placed their faith, and this morning, let me remind you this, these things are for those who have chosen to become disciples of Jesus Christ. I want to read, before we begin with the the Lord's Supper, I want to read for you a passage from 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is giving some instructions to the Corinthian church about participating in the Lord's Supper. And he says says this, 1 Corinthians 11, says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. A man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. In other words, we don't take these things lightly. Paul's warning us that before you take the elements of the supper and through them speak out in a, in, a, in a picture way the gospel of Christ. By taking these, we are saying we have placed our faith, we are a disciple of him who gave his blood and his body for me. That's what we do when we take this. If you do that and don't mean it, if you do that in a, in a way where you're harboring bitterness and anger and sin without being dealt with, he said you do so risking some pretty serious consequences. So the invitation is twofold this morning. We're going to take the supper, but the first invitation is this. It's to follow him. And the second invitation this morning is for this, as we take the supper. If you indeed this morning are a genuine disciple, you have placed your faith 
and the life and the work and the person of Jesus Christ, then this is for you. But before we do that, we're going to pray, and we're going to do exactly what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians. We're going to examine ourselves. I want you, if you, if you will, even right now, bow your heads and close your eyes and just take a few moments. If there is something in your life that would keep you from coming to the table in a worthy manner, that if you just need to confess sin, maybe you need to have something, maybe you've got anger, bitterness, whatever it might be, something in your life that needs to be dealt with this morning. Would you do that right now, but just, just between you and the Lord?